Hi, everybody. Welcome to Two Off the First. It is March the 22nd, 2023. I am Ryan Ballinger. It's good to have you here with us. The WGC Dell Technologies match play is underway in Austin, Texas. We've got the Corrales Punta Cana Championship starting tomorrow, along with a slate of other events, the LPGA's Drive-On Championship, the Johnson Workwear Open on the DP World Tour, and Sunshine Tour in South Africa. And we've got the Club Car Championship in Savannah, Georgia on the Corn Ferry Tour. And then on Friday, we've got the Gallery Classic at Mission Hills Country Club, the former host site of the ANA Inspiration Chevron Championship, Nabisco Dinah Shore. That starts uh, on Friday, too. So we've got a big week ahead. Lots to talk about uh, beyond just tournament stuff. And two big stories kind of coming out of the last few days. One being related to the disaster that is live ratings. And the other this morning being an endorsement of the rollback proposed by the USGA and RNA by none other than probably the greatest driver of the golf ball of this generation, which is kind of stunning, to be honest with you. So let's start with the live piece first, and then we'll get into the rollback piece, because I, I think that's worth spending a little bit of time on at the back end, maybe a little bit more attention to it. So live ratings are out, right? They came out a little bit on Sunday uh, from Kevin Van Valkenburg, who's now at No Laying Up. Check out his work there. He's, he's great, does great stuff. And he reported that he had heard from a source at Nielsen that the Saturday rating for Liv was 0.14, which is down 30% from the 0.20 that it was during the first event at Mayakoba. And the initial thought was, okay, well, yeah, that kind of makes sense. A couple things at work here. Sports leagues, new sports leagues, generally have their peak in week one because curiosity is at its highest then. And then you lose your audience pretty quickly thereafter. And then whatever remains after the third or fourth timeout, that's what your true audience is, at least for year one. And then you can try to build it up with year two or three or four. Same things happened with the XFL. Curiosity at the start comes down some. Same thing happened with the USFL uh, in the iteration that was the, the Birmingham, Alabama version of the league. We had that. That's happened with the Alliance of Foot American Football. Uh, all these different kind of new leagues that pop up now and then. This is what happens. You get curiosity at the start, and then the people who realize they either didn't like it or just don't really want to find the time for it every every time out, they go away. And maybe they come back here and there, but that's generally how it works. So a 30% drop is not in and of itself shocking or particularly unexpected for a new league. It is somewhat shocking, though, that that happens in golf because golf audiences are fairly sticky. I mean, golf is still golf at the end of the day. And this league, whether you want to acknowledge it or not, has a lot of named players. They've got Dustin Johnson and Cam Smith and Phil Mickelson and Bryson DeChambeau and Brooks Kepka and go down the line of other players that are international draws as well. And yet still, for the second event, they had a 30% drop. Now, what does that translate to in terms of actual audience? That came out yesterday. That came from Sports Business Journal. Josh Carpenter uh, does a great job over there. He put the numbers to the rating. And on Saturday, they had 284,000 people in the metered markets on Nielsen. On Sunday, that dropped by 10,000 to 274,000. So usually golf ratings get better over the course of a week. The Thursday, Friday ratings for the PGA Tour are typically not nearly as good as Saturday and Sunday for a couple of different reasons. One, Thursday, Friday is on cable. Not as many people watch cable. Saturday, Sunday is also better because the tournament progresses, right? As, it, as the pressure ratchets up, as you get closer to the finish, more and more and more and more people watch. So you would expect to see in a normal functioning tournament, Thursday, Friday be approximately the same, maybe Thursday a little higher than Friday. 
And then Saturday and Sunday, you see an increase. And we did not see that in this case, right? We didn't see that at all. We saw a decrease, which is kind of surprising because if you looked at the numbers for the Valspar Championship, and I don't have the final rating in front of me for that, I'm sorry, but if you look at it anecdotally, like if I look at my website and the way the audience changes from day to day to day to day, and even hour to hour on Sunday, there's an, a spike in audience from, let's call it 4.30 in the afternoon in a tournament on Florida until the end at about 6 o'clock when it really spikes up. And then it kind of dissipates quickly after that. So that's your peak audience because people want to know who won and the final result. They may not necessarily want to watch the entire thing. So that did obviously not happen here. Or if it did, that means the numbers on Sunday were so low otherwise that the spike didn't help the overall average that much over the telecast, which would also be bad, right? That's a decrease of viewership from Mayakoba. That's a poor number in general. And you could say, if you're a, a live fan or a defender or whatever, you could say, okay, well, the NCAA tournament was on. The ratings were fantastic for those games on Saturday and Sunday. How are we going to keep up with that? And I think you make a reasonable point. So you get to make your case again at the event that's just outside of Orlando, Orange County National, next week. And, and we'll see, I guess, if that changes, right? Even though you still have the NCAA tournament, you won't have quite as many games and maybe not quite as many people interested because maybe their schools are out or what have you. But that'll still be a drag on the rating, probably. And then you want to kind of look at where, okay, you've lost 30% of your audience your first time out. Do you lose more next time? Or do you lose the same or do you lose less? Because the, the loss is expected, right? So if you expect a loss, you expect 10%, 15%, 20%. Pushback also from Live, and they'll put out some internal numbers. They said 3.2 million, I believe was the number they believe, consumed every you know some piece of Live Golf from the last time out. I, I presume they will report something lower or say nothing at all. Because that's just the reality of it. That That's how this works. And their pushback, though, has been, hey, well... Yes, the rating on TV isn't quite as good. It's down 30% from, this was to Kevin Van Valkenburg on the Saturday number. But we've seen increases in the downloads of the CW app and their Live Golf Plus app, which is for countries and geographies where you can't watch the CW. And that, you know, we're doing really well. Everything's going really well. People are signing in to stream and watching via streaming, and that's going to make the audience much bigger. And if if you buy into that, then you also have to buy into the fact that probably fewer people watch this time. So if you come out and say, well, we have 3.2 million for Mayakoba and we have like 4 million for this one, no one's going to believe you. And they shouldn't believe you because we just know the realities of the situation. So all that said, okay, the ratings were bad. Now what do you do? Well, if you're live, it sounds like they're going to lean more in on the team concept. Alan Shipnuck, who is with Fire Pit Collective, he has been reporting on Live and been attending the first two Live events, in part because he's writing a book about the war between the, the Live Golf faction and the PGA Tour faction. And I think that'll come out probably next year. And he's been looking into the events and he's been kind of snooping around and getting sources. And I mean, he knows all, a lot of the players that are on Live, if not all of them. And so there's been some meetings between just the captains of the 12 four person teams and uh, the players group in general, the 48. And they've been approached by the Saudis to say there is an interest from Liv in taking some of the individual purse money, the $20 million that they play for, 
and putting that into a team purse, which is currently $5 million and paid to the top three teams in the finish. They want to lean in on the team concept. They want to have a differentiating factor that isn't the people who are playing, because obviously that only goes so far. They believe that having team golf as a concept in these remaining events is a bigger emphasis will be a draw. couple problems with that. One, most people are not used to team golf. Not at this level, at a professional level. The team golf that you understand is one week a year, which is the Zurich Classic of New Orleans, or it's a 12-on-12 biennial competition between the U.S. and another opponent, whether that's the Ryder Cup against Europe or the President's Cup against the rest of the world that's not Europe. So college golf is often played that way. High school golf is often played that way. But most people haven't played college golf, and a lot of people didn't play high school golf. They took over the game later in life. That's how it typically works. So they're not really used to this concept of team golf in their head. It might be used to a two-on-two Nassau or something like that, but not a stroke play team competition where you have three scores count out of four, and, and collegiate golf is a little bit different than that, but you get the idea. Second problem is none of the team competitions have been close where they've been stroke play. The, the, the typical win on live is like four, six, eight strokes. I mean, they've been blowouts. Of course, there are four players. That's a little different than one. But four strokes is a lot of strokes. I don't care whether you're playing four people, ten people, one person. That's a lot. And so people are not going to interpret that as interesting to watch if every week has basically been a blowout. And if you're going to assign more money to the purse for the team competition, then you've got to pay out more teams. So it means you're going to pay out five or six teams, which means all of a sudden you're kind of diluting that money. You're diluting it away from the individuals as well, because in 2023, Liv has decided they are going to take the money for the team competitions and not give it out to the individual members of the team divided by four, but rather it goes into the coffers for the team, which is meant to be used for expenses whether it's transportation or caddies or entourage or marketing or merch or, or what have you. And that is effectively money going right back to the Saudis because the Saudis have offered a sizable advance to each team because they are now on the hook for all of those things moving forward. So the team component is effectively paying for the advance in many ways. And for the teams that aren't scoring inside the top, let's say, five or six consistently in these events, they're not going to be getting money for their team, which means they're going to have to start paying out their own pocket for expenses, which is also a, a big sticking point for some of these players. So the conversation really is, okay, we thought we were getting all the money and we were getting the individual and the team part. Now we're not getting all the money. The team gets some, which really no one's getting, or it's just being written off as an expense. And you're taking some potentially money away from the individual events to pay for that. Or you're, or you're adding more money in because you're going to take a $5 million purse and make it 10 at 20 and 10 or something like that. Either way, if you're adding $5 million more per event, well, that's $60 million more, $70 million more per year if you're adding $5 million per event. If you just do the 13 individual events, that's $65 million. Well, if you're looking at a pro forma over 10 years, that's $650 million more you've just agreed to spend just because you want to emphasize the team competition. If you're the, the players and you lose some of your, your individual purse, maybe you're less motivated to stay because all of a sudden that $20 million purse is $17 million or $15 million. Well, PJ Tour has got a whole bunch of events that have at least $12 million purses, so what's the difference between playing on live and there at that point? 
you can play your own schedule. You decide what you want on the PGA Tour instead of on Live, where you agree to play whatever number of tournaments they play, which is also a point of contention, even though a lot of players apparently didn't read their part player participation agreements, the contracts that they signed, because it's very clear in the language, and I've posted this to, uh, on social media over the years, and uh, or last year or so, uh, posted it recently as well. Again, if you want to follow me at Ryan Ballingy and read it, but if you look at the agreement that I shared, and this one was for Taylor Gooch, it says very explicitly, Live plans to play eight events in their first year, 10 in their second year, and 14 after that. But that Live and only Live has the sole discretion to decide exactly how many tournaments they play, and you agree to play all of them. So some players were upset that the original intention was to have a 10-event invitational last year, or, or this year as a, as a follow-on to last year, and they decided to go with the full 14-event schedule for whatever reason, whether because they thought it was a success or they needed to accelerate the timeline or whatever it is. Public reason, private reason, they're probably a little different. Nevertheless, the contract says, we think we're going to play 10, but we could tell you to play 20 or 50 if we want. They decided on 14. So some players are upset about that because now they have to play more. Well, I mean, you're still getting the opportunity to be compensated for all of that. But it seems like there's some pushback on all kinds of facets of live. That doesn't mean it's just going to fall apart immediately. But it sounds like they're trying to build the plane in midair. And they're changing the design in midair. And that's going to cause some problems. And for some players who have one, two, three-year contracts, particularly the ones and twos, they may decide, hey, this one year is enough for me. Or two years is enough for me. And I'm going to try to go back to the PGA Tour. If that starts to happen... Now you've got a conundrum on your hands if you're Jay Monahan. How do you decide who to bring back and at what punishment and what fashion so you don't upset your existing membership, but you get some of the stars back, but some of the ones you probably don't necessarily want back. So how do you work all of that out too? Lots of intrigue there. Lots going on. Try to cram that into as short of amount of time as possible, but hey, 14 minutes is a lot for live drama. Okay, second story today. Rollback. Rollback stuff. So there's been some response from TaylorMade to all of this, they basically said the same thing as Titleist and Akushnet, which is their parent company. Hey, we believe golf is best with one singular set of equipment rules. We think it's great that you should be able to play the same equipment that your favorite professional plays, even though, parentheses, probably not best for you, and you probably shouldn't play it oftentimes, but we think that's the way it should work. And then they've attached a Qualtrics survey where they're trying to get information from people with a leading set of questions, I think, regarding their opinion on the rollback. But, interestingly enough, one of TaylorMade's highest profile staffers is for the rollback, and that's Rory McIlroy. So he was on the No Laying Up podcast. Uh, he talked with them in a lengthy interview. Also did some really interesting talk about Succession, <laughs> the show, on HBO. Uh, I've never watched that, but it is kind of interesting that they have Rory McIlroy talking about that with the guys over there. It was entertaining. But anyway, here's his take on the rollback. Quote, I think my opinion differs from my peers and probably the PGA Tour as a whole. This is just my opinion and I'm only one voice, but honestly, if I'm taking my PGA Tour hat off here, the major championships are already such a big deal in the game of golf. And if the major championships somehow adopt this ball change and the PGA Tour doesn't, I think it widens the gap between PGA Tour golf and major championship golf, which, if anything, the PGA Tour is trying to make up some sort of market share or trying to get a little closer to the major championships in terms of the interest that we create within our tournaments, end quote. That's a really interesting point of view on this, and I had not really thought of it from that perspective. 
until he kind of laid it all out here. It does make sense. I mean, there's a reason why the PGA Tour has tried to create a schedule with, up until this year, one big event per month. That that one event per month was often a major, but in the months where they didn't have majors, they tried to fill that with PGA Tour events. Namely, the players and the FedEx Cup playoffs and, you know, name your invitational, right? Well, now they're doing that two times a month and they're trying to do that with the designated tournaments to try to create an event so big, huge purse, great field, guaranteed great field that you got to watch. And it may not get to major championship level audiences and the players on Sunday was 3 million because everyone knew Scotty Scheffler was going to win. But that that they're, they're trying to kind of create a world where there's not just the majors and the players and everything else, but trying to tighten that gap. I think they realize, obviously, in Ponte Vedra Beach that they're not going to compete with the majors for ratings. That's just not going to happen. There's just too much golf fatigue for that to be possible. But what they could do is create a string of events that kind of weave the year together a little bit better and create more opportunities for bigger audiences. That's what they see with these designated tournaments. And I, I think Rory has a point here. The idea that if the PGA Tour says, nah, we're good, we're going to play the same equipment as regulated by the USGA and RNA for everybody, then you go to the majors and Augusta National could have a Masters ball. You could have a USGA ball for the US Open. PGA of America may or may not choose to adopt this, but if they do, they have their own ball potentially. The RNA could all of a sudden go to their own ball. They could make it harder to play in the wind or easier to play in the wind or I don't know. You could come up with a bunch of different profiles for that. You could have conceptually four different major championship balls. You could have one major ball across the four majors or three of the four majors. You could have all kinds of different scenarios. Well, if each of the majors have their own, truly have their own identity because of their history and the equipment that you have to play, and then you go to the PGA Tour and you watch guys just bomb the hell out of the ball, and I'm not saying that's un, not entertaining, but it's just, it's just going to look a little different frame-wise, frame of reference-wise, then I think Rory might have a point here that it's just going to look, not silly, but it's going to be different. And some people may not like that. They may go, well, this isn't this isn't a highest championship level of golf that they're playing on the PGA Tour because they're playing equipment that the other majors deem illegal or not worth playing anymore. And I can understand the pushback on the, on the opposite side that, hey, the PGA Tour is the pinnacle of professional golf. They're the biggest professional golf tour. They create the, the most weeks of golf entertainment at this level, they should be able to have a say at the table. And I think that's reasonable. But then you create a scenario where if the PGA Tour says, we're going to abide by the original USGA and RNA standard, then you get into the equipment testing game. And that gets expensive. Because now you have to test every player's equipment. You have to test them more frequently. You have to test new releases. You have to test new shafts, new balls, new club heads. All of that for, for conformity because the USGA doesn't necessarily want to do that. And if the PGA Tour decides it, they're going to adopt their own standard, whether that's the existing standard or a new one even, well, they've got to enforce it. They've got to police it, which means you've got to test equipment in some fashion. And I, I don't know that the PGA Tour wants to get into that kind of expense. 
And they certainly don't love punishing players for behavior unbecoming of a professional or drug testing failures. That's not what they want to be doing. They have to have those policies and rules in effect because it's a league. I mean, it's professional golf. You have to govern. But can you imagine a world where the PGA Tour then has to go ding guys left and right because their equipment's non-conforming? And that could be a disaster in the first year that they choose to do it which might be 2026. I don't necessarily think that the players want to get into that game with the PGA Tour. It's better to have a boogeyman in the USGA and the RNA go, well, they made us do this and we didn't want to do it, but we got to do it because everyone's making us do that. I think that makes more sense. Even even if they're totally anti-rollback. I'm, again, pro-rollback, but if you want to get into that, then you're going to make an investment in having your own rules, in having your own equipment standards. And and I'm not sure the PGA Tour is ready for that. They might be, and they could surprise me. But I I think that makes a whole lot of sense. Rory continues, quote, I've been adamant, pretty adamant, that I don't really want the governing bodies to touch the recreational golfer because we need to make this game as not intimidating and as much fun as possible just to try to keep the participation levels at an all-time high. So I'm glad in this new proposal that they haven't touched the recreational golfer. But for elite level play, I really like it. I really do. I know that's a really unpopular opinion amongst my peers, but I think it's going to help identify who the best players are a bit easier, especially in this era of parody that we've been living in these past couple of decades. And if he says, uh, and he says he's, he's willing to look at a rolled back ball as a way to potentially work in his favor, saying, quote, if that gives me the best chance to succeed at the major championships, and feel as prepared as I possibly can be, then that's what I would do, end quote, saying he would even consider using a rolled back ball in play because that would have him prepared better in advance to play major championships. Which, if you go go down that rabbit hole of, okay, the PGA Tour has its own standard and each of the majors could have their own ball. I mean, they might have one that could each have their own, but entertain that any of those possibilities. Then when you're preparing for a major championship, when do you choose to try to put that major championship ball into play? Do you do it as you lead into the Masters? Because then all of a sudden you're you're going between golf balls at huge money events between the API and the players, which is still going to be in March come 2026. Can you imagine trying to play the, the richest person on the PGA Tour with a ball you don't play all the time just because you're trying to get ready for the major? Or do you play with the the standard ball that is the PGA Tour standard, the off-the-shelf ball that you and I could play. And then you make a switch and you skip out two or three weeks because you have to get ready to play the Masters ball or the the Major ball or whatever it's going to be. That could be a disaster for a lot of players. So I would understand the scenario where a Tour pro would say, yes, I may lose distance relative to my peers one club or so, but I'm willing to take that hit if that means I'm better prepared for the Majors. And I could see that happening. So it's a very interesting conundrum, a series of decisions that are going to be made by the PJ Tours board, then by the players, and then in response, and then they're it's going to go from there. Still a long time, I think, before those decisions get made and thought out. But probably by sometime at the end of this year, we're going to have a good idea of what that looks like. But it's very interesting that Rory McIlroy decided, hey, I'm going to come out in favor of this. And he thinks it will actually be helpful to him in the long haul. And he thinks it's helpful for the game in the long haul. So 
take your opinion of that, which you will. I know McElroy is often a, uh, a crit oft criticized figure in the game and Hey, you can have your feelings about him, obviously, but it seems like he's going to take a stand here that may be a little bit different than a lot of his peers. And I, I'm very interested to see the response to this as a result. And maybe this has any kind of spur on to the PGA tours membership or elite players or how it might be considered by the tour and manufacturers for that matter. That's going to do it for us today on two at the first. Thank you so much for watching or listening to the show. If you do watch on YouTube, smash that like button, please consider subscribing to our channel. If you listen through a podcast, thanks for listening. Please give us a five-star review. If you're on a podcast platform and let us do that, leave a comment helps us reach more people. I'm available on Twitter at Ryan Balangie. You can email me Ryan at the golf We'll be back tomorrow with another show. Uh, it'll be an on the road show because I'm actually flying down to Aiken, South Carolina. going to be doing a little golf vacation, uh, playing a, a new club that I joined, share some pictures on Twitter of old Barnwell. Can't wait to show them to you. Can't wait to check out the place tomorrow. Very, very excited about that. Till then I'm Ryan Balangie. Thank you for watching or listening. We will catch you next time on two of the first.